Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of refined cuisine. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling, and today our topic is sushi. Delicious sushi. Yummy. So you may think that sushi is raw fish, but you would be wrong. Yes. Sushi uses raw fish often as an ingredient, but sushi refers to the rice. Yeah. Specifically, uh, vinegared rice, usually with some sugar and salt as well. And then it's accompanied by seafood and or vegetables. Right. And that rice in Japanese is also known as sushi meshi, sumeshi, or shari. And you really can't overstate how important that rice is. I've seen so many sushi chefs say, like in interviews, the rice is the most important part. And they go to extreme lengths to get the best possible rice they can get and cook it in the best possible way. Like preparing it in the right way is essential. Yes, every sushi chef will tell you it's all about the rice. Yeah. And that is part of what explains why gas station sushi is terrible. Because that rice, I mean, it's, it's been in the fridge for a long time. It's gotten all dried out. It's just, it's just gross. That's not what sushi is supposed to be in its best form yeah that gas station sushi uh you know it's good for two days or whatever before you got to pull it like yeah i mean it's still okay but the rice is not going to be as nearly as good as it is fresh yeah i mean after a couple days at a cooler right usually sushi should be eaten like immediately like a sushi chef if you're at a sushi bar he's gonna put together that sushi set it in front of you there's a less than a minute between when that sushi is formed and when you pop it in your mouth yeah And you're thinking rice is cooked hot and raw fish is going to be refrigerated and cold, but sushi is actually eaten usually at about room temperature because the rice, you have to let cool down before you can mix it and make it sushi rice. And uh, the fish is going to be warmed up when it's being made by the chef's hands. Right. So sushi is also often served with Pickled ginger, known as gari. Also wasabi, which you may have heard of, a spicy little green stuff. And soy sauce. And I also want to mention sashimi, which is not sushi. It is a different thing. Sashimi is just thinly sliced fish. Yep. Well, should we go way back to the origins? Let's do it. Of sushi in Japan. Hop in the way back machine. <laughs> We're going back. How far are we going back? We're going back so far that we don't even know how far exactly we're going back. Yeah, hard to pinpoint a specific year. So what eventually has become modern day sushi began in the paddy fields of Southeast Asia, probably at least 2,000 years ago, where fish was fermented with salt and rice, after which the rice was discarded and they ate just the fish. Yeah. Yeah, just a method of preserving the fish, basically. And uh, this fish was called, or is today called, narizushi. And it first appeared in Chinese dictionaries in the second century. So it was at least in China by that point. And uh, was introduced to Japan around the Yayoi period. There seemed to be conflicting sources on this. 
Yeah, yeah, there's, I mean, it's hard to pinpoint stuff that happened before there was a written language, right? There were no records of this, really. Yeah, so it could have come to Japan over 2,000 years ago, or it could have come to Japan in the 6th to 8th century range. No one's quite sure. Yep. Uh, So this narizushi still exists, actually, in some places as a regional specialty, but sushi continued to develop and evolve over the years. So in the Muromachi period, which was between 1336 and 1573, they started to add vinegar, both for flavor and because they found out that it was better at preserving the fish. The fish would last even longer with that vinegar. The Muromachi period is also when people began to eat the rice as well as the fish. Eventually in Osaka, they started making another form called Hakozushi, which is sort of getting close to what nigiri sushi is like these days. And this is when they pressed the sushi into these wooden molds and then sliced it up. So you'd have these little pieces that are rectangular little blocks, kind of a little bit like nigiri sushi. Yeah. I've never seen that in person, but like the pictures look kind of cool. These perfect little rectangle blocks of sushi. Yeah. You know, that reminded me of a kind of sushi I've actually seen at like all-you-can-eat buffets where they're not specializing in sushi. Like if they're serving all sorts of other stuff, but they want like a really quick, easy way to make a bunch of sushi and stick it out there, that's easier than making it piece by piece. You just make this giant block of it and slice it up, you know? Yeah. I've seen that at buffets. Definitely. During the Edo period, which started in 1603 and went through the mid-1800s, as is often the case... Sushi started to develop into what we would think of as sushi today. People began to eat vinegared rice with the sushi rather than the fermented rice. Yeah, and this is also when the nori seaweed came to play a bigger role in that as well. And nigiri sushi, which is just a little ball of rice with fish on top of it, that form of sushi, which you see all the time these days, especially in Japan, became popular in the 1820s to the 1830s. So these days, sushi is pretty common all over the world almost. The first sushi restaurant opened in the United States in 1906 in Little Tokyo in Los Angeles. Oh, nice. We've been there. Yeah. We've ate sushi there. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the ingredients used in sushi. Okay. The most important one, we've already mentioned that sushi meshi, the sushi rice. Mm-hmm. And just to give you a little more details about that, the type of rice that they use is a white short grain rice. And as Paul mentioned, it's going to be mixed with a dressing made of a mixture of rice, vinegar, sugar, and salt. I also saw that different parts of Japan prepare that sushi rice slightly differently. The Kansai region around where Osaka and Kyoto are they generally use more sugar in that mixture. The Kanto region around Tokyo would use more salt. Mm. Yeah, even today, each sushi restaurant in Japan has their own secret recipe for exactly how they make their sushi rice. Yeah. And with sushi rice, the stickiness of the rice is the essential quality. Yeah, you can't have your sushi just falling apart. It'd be terrible. You just got it all over your hands. Got to scoop it up, shove it in your mouth. That's no fun. Yeah, you don't have that problem eating sushi. The rice sticks together. If it's well made, yeah. (laughs) 
I hope you're eating well-made sushi. Oh, you know I am. <laughs> Not everybody is, though, and I, my heart goes out to them. Yeah, same here. Another very common part of sushi these days is seaweed, known as nori. And it's cool the way that they make this stuff. I mean, it's, it's, you're going to see nori in sheets, usually. That's what they use to wrap around rolls and to hold different types of sushi together. And the way that they make those sheets is they take that seaweed and it's shredded, and then they dry it on racks, a lot like the way that paper is made. But instead of shredding a bunch of trees down, you're shredding up this seaweed and then laying it out to dry. Yeah, I didn't know that before I started researching for this episode. I thought it grew in like big leaves underground or something that they dried out and made sheets out of. Yeah. But nope, they just scrape algae off stuff and yeah, <laughs> and make it like paper. Yeah, like they used to just scrape it off of docks or the bottoms of boats and stuff and just dry it and eat it. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know who would think of that. Someone was hungry. <laughs> I guess. Like that's green, it's growing. Maybe I can eat it. Yeah. Nori by itself um, is an edible snack and is sometimes flavored with salt or teriyaki sauce, but that tends to be the lower quality stuff. The good stuff is what you get with sushi. Mm-hmm. I'm often used with uh, maki sushi, which is like sushi rolls, sometimes used with other sushi, but mostly with the rolls. So then all the other ingredients that go with the rice that aren't seaweed are called goo. G-O-O? Goo? G-U. Okay. And mostly what you're going to see is different types of fish. Some of the common types are tuna, yellowtail, snapper, mackerel, and salmon. Although, Paul, did you know that salmon is not a traditional sushi ingredient? Yeah, I did know that. Fine. But did you also know... The eating raw salmon was not introduced to Japan until the 1980s. I didn't know that. Boom. Gotcha. All right. (laughs) You got me. (laughs) So I just wanted to have a little aside here because I think this is an interesting story. So salmon came to Japan to be used in sushi from Norway. And the story is in the 80s, Norway had too much salmon, more salmon than they knew what to do with. So the government hired this guy to go to Japan and sell them salmon to use as sushi. And they're like, oh, Japan, they eat a lot of fish. They like that sushi stuff. Let's get them into salmon so we can offload some of this, right? So the guy goes to Japan, and they thought it was gross. <laughs> like this, what is this? I mean, they had salmon, but they always cooked it because, one, they were afraid of parasites. But they're like, oh, this doesn't taste good raw. It doesn't smell good. The color is wrong. It should be darker. What is wrong with this stuff? But apparently Norwegian salmon doesn't have parasites like Japanese salmon, apparently. Interesting. Yeah. You make me feel bad because I always liked salmon in sushi. It was always one of my favorites before I went vegan. Why would you feel bad? Well, because now you're saying, well, the Japanese people (laughs) thought it was terrible. Well, at first they did, but he managed to sell them on it eventually. So he sold it to this big company called Nishire, a really well-known company that, you know, people trusted. And he told them that he would sell it to them really cheap, but they had to sell it in grocery stores as sushi. And it worked. And it started to grow in popularity. And now you find salmon all over the place, even at like high-end sushi restaurants in Japan. And it's one of the most popular sushi ingredients in other parts of the world, too. Yeah, it's quite common. Yeah. 
So Japan helped Norway by buying all these salmon. But Norway, in a way, also helped Japan by helping spread the idea of sushi around the world. Because people like salmon. Yeah. Pretty cool story, huh? Yeah, it is. I like that. So various other kinds of seafood other than fish are used in sushi as well. Some popular ones are squid, eel, octopus, uh, shrimp, fish roe, which is fish eggs. Delicious. Sea urchin. Also delicious. One of your favorites, I know. Crab, imitation crab, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and various kinds of shellfish, such as prawns and scallops. Yep. And all this seafood used in sushi tends to be raw. So it's very important that the minimum quality and freshness is at the absolute peak. So it's only the best, most fresh, highest quality seafood that's making its way into sushi. Yeah, and sushi chefs are really picky about that. Like they'll go down to the fish market every day and find the very best quality stuff that they can. And if they're looking for a specific fish, but they can't find something that's up to their standards, they may just not serve that fish that day. Like I couldn't find something that is good enough, so you're not getting it at all. Yeah. They uh, use smell, color, and firmness to help them decide. They check for parasites that can sometimes go undetected in normal commercial inspections, Mm -hmm. but are much less of a problem if you cook the fish. Yeah. And uh, a lot of sushi restaurants have a special of the day. And that kind of ties into the fact of the best fish they find that day is what they're going to buy. Yeah, totally. And so if they find a really good whatever fish, that's be that's the special of the day because it's super high quality. Yep. Um, so vegetables are also a common ingredient or goo in yeah. sushi. That's more your kind of thing than my <laughs> kind of thing, but... Yeah. I mean, pickled daikon radish or other pickled vegetables are used. Cucumbers are definitely popular in Japan. Um, yams, umeboshi, which is uh, pickled plums, and sweet corn is used, often mixed with Japanese mayo. Yeah, that's interesting. You don't really see that in the U.S. at all, even though that sound like mayo sounds like something that the U.S. would be into, you know? <laughs> well, I haven't seen the corn with mayo in the U.S., but they definitely use mayo a lot on uh, right. U.S. sushi. Yeah, but I've literally never seen corn in American sushi. No, I haven't either. Um, they got some other things too. Tofu. Yep. And eggs. Yeah, they make the eggs into this little omelet sort of thing, mixing other ingredients into it. That's some good stuff. Yeah. I've heard they use raw quail eggs sometimes too. I haven't seen that. Yeah. Oh, I've had that. That's good. I like that. Hmm. And, uh, sushi is served with condiments usually. Yep. There are a few that are very common to see. One is soy sauce, known in Japanese as shoyu. And Japan has specific types of soy sauce. There might be different types used in different parts of the country, but I just wanted to point out that not all soy sauce is the same. There are, Asia is a big place, and pretty much every country has their own different variety of soy sauce, and they might have slightly different flavors. So if you're buying soy sauce to go along with your sushi, make sure you're getting a Japanese one. Sushi's also... Very commonly served with pickled ginger Mm -hmm. um, that's used to cleanse the palate between different types of sushi. 
Um, it also aids in digestion as well. That's what they say. Another common one is wasabi. You might have heard of this. Yeah. Well, spicy. Yeah. And in the U.S., almost always the wasabi that you find is not real wasabi. It's an imitation made with horseradish, and they even use food coloring to make it green like that. But real wasabi is actually a root that is fairly difficult to farm, which makes it pretty expensive and best farmed in Japan. It's one of the easiest places to farm it, so more common there. But you're also going to see that imitation horseradish stuff a lot in Japan, especially at less expensive restaurants. And the other thing about wasabi is that that root needs to be grated like really soon before you eat it because the flavor dissipates pretty quickly. So it's usually going to be served, if you're using real wasabi, it'll be served with a little grater sort of thing. So you can grate it yourself at your table. Although I thought this was interesting. Traditionally, the way that it was grated was with a, a dried shark fin. So there would be a side that was really rough and that was rough enough to grate the wasabi apparently. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, I heard it loses its spiciness really quickly. Yeah. It's hard to grow, plus it's a little bit more difficult to use. You got to do it right there at the table, yeah. right when you're eating. Yeah, it's a bit of work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, green tea is often served with sushi. Yeah, almost always in Japan. Beer is pretty common too, especially maybe at dinner time. But you'll get green tea and beer. Right, right. Um, some side dishes that are common with sushi are uh, daikon radish and pickled daikon radish. Yup. So there are a ton of different types of sushi, and you've probably seen a few of them in the U.S., but there are some other types that you probably have not seen before. One of the more well-known types of sushi is something called maki sushi which is a roll. Sometimes in the U.S. you see it called a maki roll even. Yep. So this is a cylindrical type of sushi. Basically the way it's made is you spread rice on a sheet of seaweed. You put something on there that goes in the middle and then you wrap up the seaweed and you got this cylinder and then it gets sliced into six or eight pieces and that's how it's served. Yeah, there's a little bamboo mat called a makisu that you put the seaweed on and then it helps you roll it up into a nice, tight cylinder. Yep. Um, there are different types of makizushi, mm-hmm. many different types. Yes. There is one called futomaki, which is thick roll or fat rolls. Yeah. Was it the last episode where I talked about how sometimes Japanese words are just super plain and descriptive? Futoi is the word for fat. So futomaki, it's a fat roll. Yeah. That's simple. So it's a cylindrical roll, but it's bigger. It's fatter. It's not longer. It's fatter. Yep. More ingredients that you can fit inside that one. And then on the other end, you also got hosomaki, which is a thin roll. Yes. And these are generally with only one ingredient inside, such as cucumber. Yep. It would just be seaweed, rice, cucumber. Yep. Another type of roll is the temaki. Te means hand. So this is a hand roll, which is basically where they take seaweed and make a little cone shape out of it and then stuff it with stuff. Yeah. So these you could eat, just pick it up with your hand and start munching. Yep. 
They recommend you eat it quickly so that the seaweed stays nice and crispy. Yeah, you don't want to get all soggy. Another one I thought was interesting was uh, ehomaki, which is called the lucky direction roll. I don't think it's very common, but it's a roll with seven ingredients inside, and seven is a lucky number. Uh So it's considered a lucky roll. Cool. But I don't know if I've ever seen one, or at least I haven't noticed. I think I saw that there's a certain event where they eat that, and they eat it while they're standing facing in a certain direction that's supposed to be lucky. Interesting. Yeah. So it's all about the luck. So if you've noticed, we've been calling it Maki Zushi rather than Maki Sushi. Yeah. What's up with that? The reason for that is sushi turns into zushi when it's added as part of a word. There are a lot of different parts of the Japanese language that work in a similar way. If you stick words together, a lot of times S's can become Z's like that. Yeah. So that's where that's coming from. And you'll see that again in another type of popular sushi called nigiri zushi which is hand-pressed sushi. So they take a ball of rice and they stick something on top of it, usually fish. There's some other stuff. And those toppings, certain types of toppings can be secured with a strip of that same nori seaweed Mm -hmm. that we were talking about. Most commonly octopus, squid, eel, and egg will have a little strip of nori holding them onto the rice. Yeah. You know, I remember seeing some Japanese TV show where they were talking about this style of sushi. And I think, if I recall correctly, they were showing like the skill of a master sushi chef compared to an amateur. Yeah. They have the sushi chef and this random guy make nigiri sushi. And then they put both of those pieces on a table and they blew a fan at them. And they increased the strength of that fan over time to see when the fish on top would get blown off of the rice. (laughs) Okay. And of course, the master sushi chef, his fish was glued to the top of that rice. Like it was not moving. Yeah. And they had to get the fan up to a super high speed before it would get blown off. Now, I have no idea why that would matter or how that would affect the flavor of the sushi. Or maybe it's even just the idea that you can get it to your mouth without it falling apart. That's the idea because you're often going to be dipping that in soy sauce. So as you're dipping it around in the soy sauce and then you bring it to your mouth, you don't want the fish falling off the rice or, you know, your fish plopping off into your bowl of soy sauce would not be good. That does make sense, especially given the fact that they say that you should dip your nigiri sushi in the soy sauce upside down so that you're only getting the soy sauce on the fish and right. not on the rice. Exactly. So I heard that experienced sushi chefs are supposed to be able to make the rice, every grain of rice in the little balls they make for this to be facing the same direction. That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. What? Yeah. How yeah. could they possibly do that? Uh, much practice. I don't know, man. (laughs) I don't know if I believe it. I don't know if it's like the everything, every piece of rice is like perfectly placed, Mm -hmm. but you're not going to have one that's like just sideways. All right. And that's what they say. That's what they say. (laughs) And these are usually served with a little bit of wasabi between the rice and the fish that's on top of it. Mm Mm-hmm. So in some restaurants, if it's like a high-class restaurant, you don't want to add wasabi to this 
because the chef already put the perfect amount of wasabi in there. Yeah. And by adding some to it, you're insulting the chef. Yeah. Sometimes that's also true of soy sauce. Like at really nice sushi restaurants, sometimes they'll have a brush or they'll brush some soy sauce on the top and that's supposed to be the perfect amount of soy sauce. You won't even have a little dish of soy sauce that you could dip it in. You're just supposed to eat it exactly as he set it on your little plate thing. Yeah. And we keep talking about the fish on top of this because the nigiri sushi is generally made with fish. I don't think I've ever seen one with like a vegetable on top. Although it's probably out there somewhere. Well, we talked about the egg sometimes you'll see on top. But yeah, you don't often see vegetables. Yeah, you're not going to see like an avocado draped over a ball of rice. Right, right. Uh, Another type of nigiri sushi is something called gunkan maki. And these are cool for various reasons. But one of the cool things is the name. You know what gunkan, well, you know what a gunkan is? No. That is a warship. Ooh. Yeah, gunkan maki is a warship roll because it's kind of oval shaped like a warship, I guess. So basically what this is, is you got that clump of rice, just like you would for any nigiri sushi, but they wrap it around the sides with seaweed so that you have kind of this little bowl on top, if that makes sense. And then you can put all sorts of stuff in the top there, loose things or soft things like sea urchin, fish eggs, oysters, scallops. You mentioned quail eggs. This is how that would be served. And this is actually a fairly new type of sushi. This was not invented until 1941 at a restaurant called Ginza Kube, which is still around and super famous. Like it's a really nice sushi restaurant. Wow, that's surprising. Invented during the heat of World War II. Yeah. Most things were shutting down at that point, but I guess people always got to eat. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this method let them expand the types of ingredients they could use a lot because before there was no way to contain these small, loose ingredients in a piece of sushi. Cool. Another type of sushi is Inari sushi. Mm -hmm. This is one of my favorites. It is a pouch of fried tofu filled with sushi rice. Yeah. And the, the pouch itself is also flavored. It's not just fried tofu. They, they like boil it in a mixture of various things like soy sauce and mirin so that there's a bunch of flavor packed into that tofu. Yeah. And uh, nari sushi is usually vegan, I believe. So something I can eat. Yeah. Which is always nice. Yep. And you get said, your little bit of protein if you're not eating fish. Yeah. Yeah. So you said the pouch is stuffed with rice, right? Yes. And why is it called Inari Zushi? I heard one of the reasons was because the tofu ends up having pointed corners that look like fox ears. And Inari is a fox god. Yeah. Foxes are like the messengers of the kami Inari in folklore. There's another type of sushi that we talked about earlier in the history section. Nare Zushi. Not to be confused with Inari Zushi, which we just talked about. And the Nare Zushi is matured sushi. And that is the fermented fish sushi. Yeah, yeah, like the very first form of sushi that came about, that's still around. I don't think it's super popular anymore. No, I think it's a, it's a regional thing. You don't see it everywhere, but once in certain parts of Japan, you might find that. And we mentioned before the Hako Zushi, too a very early form of sushi, also known as Oshizushi. 
That was the box sushi where they press it into a wooden mold. And same kind of deal there. You'll find that once in a while in certain parts of Japan, but not as popular as the more modern types. Yeah, I've never seen that in person, but I got to eat some more sushi in Osaka and maybe I will. Yeah, I guess. Um, There's also Chirashi Zushi, which is scattered sushi. And it's basically a bowl with sushi rice and then a variety of toppings, raw fish and vegetables, the usual type of toppings and ingredients you get with sushi. Yeah. And at first glance, I mean, that doesn't look like anything that most Americans would think of as sushi, but it's got that sushi rice, the vinegar and rice on the bottom, and that makes it sushi. Yeah. Art is commonly eaten because it's filling, it's fast, it's easier to make. Yeah, I just throw together some rice and fish on top. Pretty simple. Um, and then there is Western-style sushi these days. Meh. <laughs> you say that, but uramaki, which is the inside-out roll, where the rice is on the outside of the nori, I know to be one of your favorites. Do you? Yes. Whatever we're making sushi, you make a bunch of those. That's because I don't have access to the type of fish that I would need to make authentic Japanese sushi. You could still make a uh, regular maki. I could. There is just something about the texture of that rice on the outside that's pretty pleasing, I suppose. And then you can like sprinkle it with sesame seeds or something to stick to the rice on the outside, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. So that is, that is one of the positive maybe benefits of sushi coming from outside Japan. I suppose. And you know... What I read was the reason that that came about was that when they were introducing sushi to the U.S., people were freaked out about seaweed, so they yeah. just hid it behind some rice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it worked. Yeah, it did. Um, there's a ton of fusion that goes on in sushi outside of Japan, so you'll see wild stuff, different ingredients that you wouldn't expect, but the sushi rice tends to be made the same way, but they get really creative with everything else. Yeah, and you know... Just to clarify, I don't have anything against American sushi. I like all those fancy rolls with all the mayo and stuff. It's delicious. But, you know, sometimes I just like to go with the authentic Japanese sushi, too. They're, they're two different things. They're both good, but they're very different. Yeah. Uh, one other note about uh, Western-style sushi is the makizushi, the rolls, are often named after their place of origin. That's why you'll see, like, California rolls are really popular or Philadelphia roll. And there's a bunch bunch named like that, yeah. or even named after the restaurant they were created in. So as is common with all Japanese food, presentation is very important for sushi as well. Indeed. So nice sushi restaurants, fancy ones, you're usually going to be sitting at like a sushi bar right in front of the chef. And he'll be setting those pieces of sushi onto a wooden lacquered platter in front of you. Yeah. Japan is known for their minimalist style in a lot of things. And that transfers to sushi presentation as well. Mm -hmm. There's not generally going to be a lot of extra stuff on the plate. Geometry is also very important. So the rolls or the other pieces of sushi are generally going to be lined up very straight they might even be placed at a 45-degree angle on the rectangular piece of wood to make it look really fancy. So it's going to be carefully plated to be pleasing to your eyes as well. 
Yeah, I mean, it's crazy the amount of care that they put into like every movement they make even. If you've ever seen the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which was on Netflix, it might still be, I'm not totally sure, but this guy has been doing the same thing for his entire life. And part of the Japanese philosophy is to constantly be thinking about ways that you can improve what you're doing. So he's had literally decades to think about every little thing that he does when he's serving sushi every day. And if you're doing anything that much and thinking that hard about how to perfect it, you get to a ridiculously high detail-oriented level. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I love that attitude. I try to do the same thing at, at my jobs. Yeah. But usually after like two f- to four years or whatever, I feel like I get really good at it and I kind of want to move on to something else and yeah. learn something new. But like just doing the same thing for like 40 years, I can't imagine how good I would get at something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so sushi can be quite a nutritious meal. The sushi containing raw fish tends to be high in proteins and vitamins and minerals and low in fat. And it contains omega-3 fatty acids, which are good for you. Vegetable sushi is high in vitamins and minerals as well and low in fat, but not as much protein, obviously. Using a lot of soy sauce with the sushi can make it high in sodium, which I don't think is a problem for most people, but... Certain people with uh, some medical conditions need to stay away from that. So be aware of that. Yeah. You know, my Um, guess would be that Americans might use more soy sauce on their sushi than Japanese people. That's just a guess. Maybe. I don't know about Japan specifically. I remember when I was working at a restaurant, Chinese people always seemed to think everything we had was too salty. Hmm. So maybe American food tends to be more salty than some other cuisines. I mean, I feel like American food is just more everything you know what i mean especially at restaurants yeah but like sweet stuff in the u.s is really sweet salty stuff is really salty yeah like we go we we go go all out (laughs) fatty stuff is going to be really fatty uh so another note on nutrition is mercury poisoning it's not common but the higher up the food chain fish are in the sea like tuna they tend to accumulate more mercury in them. So if you eat like a ton of tuna or a whole bunch of certain types of fish, you can get too much mercury. But it's generally not a problem unless you're eating it every day. Yeah. I think I heard that Jeremy Piven had been eating too much sushi and he had a problem with that. Oh, no. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about where you'd go to get sushi. Okay. One easy option if you're in Japan is at the konbini. They yeah. have fresh sushi delivered multiple times every day. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to be like the sushi served at a super high-end restaurant, obviously, but it's going to be better than the gas station sushi or the grocery store sushi you find in the U.S. generally. Yeah. Nice quick meal. Yes. There's also places called kaiten sushi, mm-hmm. uh, known as sushi train. Yep. Or conveyor belt sushi. Yes. This is a more casual way of getting sushi. It's going to be less expensive. And, you know, the sushi just comes around on little plates on a conveyor belt. You grab what you want. Nice and easy. Yeah. And at the end, you tally up the plates by color, and that's how you pay your bill. Each colored plate is worth a different amount. So they just check number of plates, do the math. That's what you owe. Yep. You can also order sushi at these places, and they will make whatever you want. 
Yeah. If you don't see something you like, if you want to make a special request, a lot of times even they'll have like a little touch screen where you can just punch in your order without even talking to anybody. That's always nice. And if the chefs notice uh, you keep taking the same sushi, they might keep making it for you and sending it on down the conveyor belt. Yeah. There's also fancier sushi bars. These are cool because these are the ones where you usually sit at the sushi bar Mm -hmm. and you get to watch the chefs making the sushi right in front of you. Yeah. And you get to interact with them. Yeah, you could ask them questions about, or they might even just offer up information on like where this fish is from or just information about that type of fish. I was at a sushi place where I told him I liked uni, the sea urchin. And he gave me sea urchin from all over the world. He told me like, this one is from this place. This one's from this place. And that's awesome. Yeah. They all had different colors and flavors and stuff. It was cool. So keep in mind, I heard that the chefs at sushi restaurants are responsible for keeping track of your tab. So as they're making you things and passing you food, they keep track of everything in their head. And the total can come out higher or lower, maybe, depending on how much they like you. Interesting. So don't be annoying to the sushi chef. Yeah. (laughs) But if you become buddy-buddy, he might slip you a little something extra. Nice. A lot of sushi places like that, though, are also going to have a set menu where you just pay a flat rate and he gives you whatever he's serving that day. Yeah. That's common. And they make the sushi there in front of you, but there's also cooked food you can order at the restaurants usually made in a kitchen out of sight. Usually when you enter a sushi bar, you let the staff know how many are in your group right away. And if you're sitting at the bar, it's polite to ask the people next to the empty seat if it's okay if you can sit there. That sounds pretty polite. Yeah, and they'll always say yes, I assume, unless they're saving the seat for someone. I guess, yeah. And another etiquette note... You are supposed to eat sushi pieces in one bite. Yes. I don't think we mentioned that yet. Yeah, I guess not. Down down in one, just like (laughs) drinking. (laughs) Ikitabe, I guess. I also looked into what it takes to become a sushi chef in Japan. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, Chefs in Japan are called itame. So they'd be a sushi itame if you were a sushi chef. But to become a sushi itame requires years of training and apprenticeship. Like so many things in Japan. Yes. Typically, after spending about five years working in a sushi restaurant, you are finally given the important task of making the sushi rice. Just the rice. Just the rice. So before that, you're washing dishes, bussing tables, doing whatever busy work. Mm Mm-hmm. And then after five years, you finally are trusted to make the rice. And uh, every senior sushi itame is going to have a very strict way of making the rice to their super secret recipe. And only after they are super pleased with how you make your rice do you get promoted to the next level, which is the wakita, which translates to near the cutting board. You're finally moving near the cutting board. Getting close. <laughs> and your duties then are going to include uh, daily preparation of the fresh ingredients, such as the fish and the ginger and the vegetables. And the seaweed too, I saw a lot of places will toast their seaweed by hand. So they have Ooh. like a little grill and some guy is just standing there with a stack of seaweed sheets, just waving it over the heat. 
And I'm sure there's a very specific technique that they have to use for that. All these little pieces that go into making sushi, people are going to be dedicated to that for a long time and get tons of practice to make sure they're doing each thing perfectly. Yeah, yeah. So eventually the Wakita will begin to prepare sushi, maybe for takeaway orders. And uh, the Wakita also learns from the chef how to interact and treat the customers as well. Now that you're standing up at the bar next to the chef, you kind of learn the ropes of running the front of house as well. Yeah. And after years of training, you finally eventually are appointed as an official Itame, and you are fully authorized to stand in front of the cutting board. That must be an exciting day, man. Yeah. Years of work paying off. Yeah. And these days, they train sushi chefs all over the world not just in Japan. Sushi chefs are trained in the U.S. and the U.K. and other places now, too. By who? By Itame. So it's not just like someone in America was like, I make sushi now and I'm going to train people. It's people that learned from someone who learned in Japan. Okay, like the skills are passed all over the world. Somebody can't just jump up and be like, oh, I'm Right. I, I'm a self-taught sushi Exactly, master. exactly. Like, you don't have to be Japanese, but you have to learn from someone who learned from the tradition somewhere along the line. Cool. And the process can take anywhere from two years to 20 years. I'm thinking two years is probably more like in the Western world, and you're probably looking closer to 20 years if you're doing it like the traditional Japanese way. Yeah. You got anything else about sushi? Because that's about all I got. I think that's all I got too. If you want to see some pictures of sushi, check out our website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. What are we talking about next time, Paul? In the next episode, we will be talking about Matsuri, Japanese festivals. Sounds like a grand old time. It'll be a party. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. As am I. Well... Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then for Matsuri next time on Sightseeing Japan.